Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're probably already aware of Cast's new true crime investigative podcast, Lost in Panama. But if you haven't caught up, new evidence and testimony has recently been uncovered in the most recent episodes. It is shining new light on this case. The first four episodes of the series set up the foundation of what is known about this case, including a deep dive into the suspicious tour guide, the mysterious photos, and the remains. But episode five launches a whole new direction of investigation into this case. A woman connected to the confirmed homicide of her own son tells us that she knows the same men responsible for her son's death are also responsible for Chris and Lasanne's deaths. Not only that, but she presents to our team a full, detailed story of exactly what happened, how the women were abducted and killed. And somehow it all adds up. All the pieces start to fit together or at least start to make more sense. As time begins to run out on the investigation, but with this major breakthrough in hand, the team in Panama must attempt to assemble a compelling enough theory of the case in order to push the Panamanian government to admit that there's more going on here than meets the eye. We need them to reopen this case so that a much closer look can be taken at all the new evidence coming to light and the families affected can finally find some closure all these years later. Will they do it? Listen to all episodes of Lost in Panama, available now wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains disturbing content, including a mention of suicidal thoughts. Please take care while listening. Hey everyone. In this episode, I will talk with my producer, Pesha about making season three of The Opportunist. We will go deeper into Cheryl's finances. We will explore rumors that Cheryl is connected to local law enforcement in Tennessee. And we will tell you more about our experiences making this season. But first, we have a brand new interview for you. This is someone we did not hear from in season three. And I'm really excited to bring you this interview. It is from one of Cheryl's former followers. So stay tuned. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. A podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. This is our epilogue episode on Cheryl Ruthven and Eva Zedin. I'm Hannah Smith. We do our best to interview as many people as possible before we publish a story. But inevitably, we always hear from people after publication, people who we weren't aware of, or sometimes people who didn't want to speak to us at first and then changed their mind. I've listened to all three episodes so far. By the way, am I allowed to swear? Yes. Okay. I never thought I'd hear that bitch's voice again. This season, that person is Desi. I'm Desi. Uh, Desi Williams. I've lived in Whatcom County my whole life. I use they, them pronouns. Desi's family attended a service at Freedom Fire in Bellingham, Washington, 
when Desi was just 12 years old. The first time we went there, we all got prophecies. I distinctly remember my prophecy. She said stuff to this chubby little 12-year-old. She's like, I see that you've been, like people have turned their back on you and that you don't have a father figure in your life. I'll be your Abba father. You can turn to me. I was like, how does she know I'm having friend trouble at school? And how does she know that like my biological dad walked out on me? This has to be real. And of course, I'm a 12-year-old, so I'm like even more impressionable. Desi's family had friends that already attended the church. Looking back now, it seems likely that those people fed information to Cheryl about Desi's biological father. Cheryl spoke loving, validating words directly to Desi, which was exactly what they needed to hear. Someone saying to you, like, I'm here for you and I'm not going to abandon you. I'm pretty sure I cried. I just felt overwhelmed with, like, peace and, like, if we come here, everything's going to get better. Everything's going to be okay because my home life was not okay. Desi's mother remarried a domineering man who saw Desi as a problem child who needed harsh punishments. Desi wasn't doing anything extreme. They just had a tendency to speak up and argue, and Desi's new dad didn't like that. So things were tense at home. Desi hoped that attending Freedom Fire would make things better, but it didn't. At age 14, Desi was forced to move out of the main house and into a trailer in the backyard. That first winter, the heater broke. There was a room in the house that if I was on good behavior, I could go and sleep in that room. But as I got older and time progressed, um, it was less and less often that I got to stay in that room. Desi actually called CPS at one point but was too scared to say that these things were happening directly to them. Instead, Desi said that a friend was forced to live in a trailer with no heat. Ultimately, CPS didn't do anything. Desi's home life was bad, but Freedom Fire was good, at least in the beginning. At the very beginning, there was a lot of Jewish influence, even though no one in the church was Jewish. And so when I was 13, they threw me a bat mitzvah. I learned later that was like love bombing. They gave me like a prayer shawl and had like a big party for me and stuff like that. And like everybody prayed over me and stuff. Love bombing is a type of emotional manipulation. The act of showering a person with attention or affection in order to gain influence over them. Soon, the attention that Desi received from Cheryl became less positive. Desi knows that their parents are the ones who decided to shut Desi out of the house, to treat Desi like a problem. But also, Cheryl was advising Desi's parents on all of those actions. And eventually, Cheryl decided that Desi's bad behavior was caused by demon possession. My parents would take me to Cheryl and try and have me exercised. I came out as bi when I was 12, and so they tried to exercise me for that. That didn't stick. What did those exorcisms look like? Like, what actually happened? So we would uh, sit in a room. Sometimes my parents would be there. Sometimes they wouldn't. 
we would almost have like a counseling session, you know, like she would ask me questions and I would answer them. And then she would pray over me. She would start speaking in tongues and then she would get some anointing oil on her fingers and uh, like put her hands on my forehead. When she does that, you would get slain in the spirit. You would like fall on the floor or like slump down in your chair or whatever. Once Cheryl started speaking in tongues, Desi would too. Desi doesn't quite know how to think about those experiences now because Desi wasn't pretending. Of course, there's no proof that Cheryl wasn't causing supernatural occurrences. But to me, that's not really the point. The point is, Desi was struggling with depression and a rough home life. Desi needed help and did not get it. Instead, there was a big show of speaking in tongues and falling on the floor. And then at the end of the day, Desi had to go home and figure out how to survive. The only thing those exorcisms accomplished was to make Desi feel shame and confusion and to feel more isolated than ever. And yet, the exorcisms continued again and again, year after year. As an adult, Desi has been diagnosed with type 1 bipolar, and medication has been very helpful. But for years, they did not receive the proper treatment. There's a meme that says, if you can't make your own neurochemicals, store-bought is fine. I wholeheartedly believe that because there's just certain things that don't happen in my brain that are supposed to happen. And so I take you know, a couple different meds that make the neurons shoot the way they're supposed to, you know, and then I can function. As Desi's story illustrates, cult leaders don't always have the best intentions when it comes to the mental health of their followers. This season, we covered some of the mind and behavioral control techniques that Cheryl used in order to cut off her followers from the outside world. Social isolation, public humiliation, self-incrimination, and sleep deprivation, just to name a few. So it tracks that faith in doctors is discouraged in favor of faith in God, or in this case, faith in Cheryl. Lord, go home. Just go home because you're combating 15 different doctors' opinions um, of past history plus current doctors' opinions. I must be a crazy woman to be able to say, guess what? I don't believe it. I believe in Jesus, and he's going to set you free from this. A lot of religions believe in the power of God and yet still use modern medicine. And it's one thing to make a personal decision not to go to the doctor or to consume medication. But it is another thing entirely to be in a position of power and tell your followers not to do these things. Here is a clip of Cheryl denouncing Prozac, a drug commonly prescribed to treat depression. So what I was going to say is, um, again, I'm going to ask that if you know people that are on Prozac, you know these women that think they're going to lose their minds. I had a gal call me last night and said, I can't believe it, but I no longer hear voices, that the voices are completely done. And I said, thank you, Jesus. Did not need medication, no therapy, no hospitalization anymore. It was just, um, you know, by the authority of Jesus, those demons were taken out. So women that you know that are in torment, this is a good opportunity for you to say to them, you know, there's a way out of this. There's a way out of this depression or feeling like you need to hold yourself up, um, and Prozac's not the answer. Advising someone who has been prescribed a medication like Prozac to just stop taking it, it's not only terrible advice, 
but it could also be dangerous. Here's Desi again. You know, you don't want to upset God. You don't want to upset Cheryl. But for example, depression, you know, if it's untreated, people kill themselves, you know? And the same with bipolar. When I'm manic, I'm much more likely to kill myself. And yet, I wonder if encouraging people to get off of their medication or to not take medication at all was another control tactic, another way for Cheryl to keep her followers in a vulnerable state. Especially, like, with my bipolar, like, I'm a lot more susceptible to suggestion um, when I'm, especially when I'm manic. When Desi is in a manic state, they make loose connections, meaning, let's say Desi's eating an ice cream cone. They might suddenly think, that means tomorrow it's going to rain. Eating ice cream equals rain tomorrow. In a manic, unmedicated state, Desi makes connections where there are none, which makes Desi much more vulnerable to manipulation. If she were to say something, I'd be a lot more inclined to believe it if I were in that state. You know, and that'd be because I hadn't taken medication. Desi thinks that not receiving the proper treatment for bipolar disorder perhaps contributed to this cycle of leaving Cheryl's group and then coming back, then leaving again, then coming back again. This went on for four years, starting when Desi was 14. I would get like these little surges of like, um, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. And then it would just, I would get defeated and I'd be like, okay, I guess I'm, I'm going to go back. And it was literally like when you walked into the building, it was like you walked under a blanket. Now, when I think about it, honestly, it felt kind of heavy going in there. But when it was in the moment, it felt more like a drug euphoria. Eventually, at the age of 18, Desi got kicked out of the house. Desi couldn't even live in the trailer anymore. They had to move out. But it turned out to be kind of a good thing, at least for Desi's relationship with their mom and sister. Then, in 2013, when Cheryl moved to Tennessee, Desi's family did, too. One thing about when they moved, they lied to me and told me that the church no longer existed. Uh, once they got over to Tennessee. And they said that Cheryl moved to Scotland. They didn't even know that I knew what she had changed her name to. And so I Googled her and she lives right there with the rest of them. They all live within like 50 to like 75 miles of each other. I'm surprised they didn't start a commune. Even though Desi's family lied about the move to Tennessee, Desi has still maintained a relationship with them. At least in my situation, most people cut ties with their family. But when they moved over there, uh, my parents kept talking to me. They still talk to me today. Desi recognizes the risk in talking with us. They don't want to lose their relationship with their family, but they also want to speak out and tell their story. Fortunately, Desi has a lot of great support. I'm in recovery, so I have a recovery support network. I've got a therapist. I've got my girlfriend. I've got lots of good friends. So, you know, I I have people to turn to if something like that happens. Okay, good. Yeah. One last question. 
What kind of power do you think that Cheryl actually has? It's kind of a hard question. A big portion of it is the power that we gave her just by believing in her. But she made it very easy. She was charismatic. She was beautiful. Like, I think she knew what she was doing all along. Why do you say that? You think that she knew what she was doing all along. What do you mean by that? Just the progression of like all the stuff she brought in, like to an outsider, it might almost look like she was just kind of grasping at straws and, you know, just throwing shit together as she went. Um, But I think she, she had a plan to, you know, start out like with a bigger congregation and then like whittle it down. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Desi's interpretation of Cheryl starting off her ministry as a Pentecostal church and then slowly incorporating different belief systems over time to eventually focus on the occult. Desi believes that was a plan. And a big part of that, I think that she, you know, tapped into something nefarious. Um, I don't know quite what it is. I don't want to know. I also, I liken the congregation to a beehive in that she is the queen bee, obviously. And her inner circle are the drones. And then there's people like my parents who are the worker bees. They kind of are along for the ride. They do what they're told, but they're also expendable, basically. Not not expendable, like I don't think anything bad would happen to them, but like they just basically don't matter as much as the people that she's like curated. Comparing Cheryl's group to a beehive is an interesting analogy, and it makes sense to me because Cheryl did not treat all of her followers equally. There was and is a hierarchy in Cheryl's group. If a person has a lot to offer Cheryl, a lot of money or talent, such as Mary Gunderson Lancaster with her singing abilities, then the more important that they will be in Cheryl's group. But at the same time, the tighter Cheryl's grasp on that person will be. We heard from Connie Gibbs this season, but we did not hear about how she ended up leaving Cheryl's ministry. For a time, Connie and her husband Ricky were bringing in money from adoption tax credits. And because of that, Cheryl did not want them to leave her group. Connie and Ricky followed Cheryl for almost 10 years. But in those last years, they were miserable. 
we wouldn't even take our kids to church because church was every Friday night. We actually would hire a nanny to take care of our kids because we didn't want them involved in the church. But we knew that if we didn't go, that she would start sending people back to our house to come get us. We would go on Friday nights, and then we would come home. We would put our kids to bed, and then Ricky and I would just go back to our rooms and like, we've got to get out of this. How are we getting out of this? We've got the money to leave, but she's not letting go. As a reminder, Connie and Ricky had 40 cats living in their house at this time, and more than one of their children is allergic to cats especially one of their sons. It seemed like they were in the ER every other day because he was having such severe health problems. They had tried to give the cats back. In fact, on more than one occasion, they returned the cats to Eva's Eden. And then the next day, they would wake up and all of the cats would be back on their front porch. So why did Connie and Ricky stay in Cheryl's group? What was keeping them there? Some of it was the spiritual threats from Cheryl, As we heard from Mary Gunderson Lancaster in episode four, Cheryl told her followers that if they left the group, they would lose their minds and their souls. They would go to hell. But it wasn't just the spiritual threats. There were physical threats as well. We were just kind of stuck in a a place that we couldn't just up and leave. It just it just wasn't possible. And I know people go, anything's possible. You can always pick up and leave. No, not if your lives are threatened. Not if they're telling you, well, we're going to make sure that your husband loses his job. She had ways of causing people to fire you from your jobs. Connie's husband, Ricky, was good friends with Ted Johnson. And after Ted was excommunicated, Cheryl pressured Ricky to stop talking to Ted. When Ricky wouldn't do that, he received a call from his boss. His boss told him if he continued his friendship with Ted, he would be fired. It was his boss part of the church, or is it just that Cheryl somehow was able to reach his boss? Oh, he wasn't part of the church, but Cheryl was able to reach. She was able to reach everybody. She was. She had her hands in the police department. She had her hands in the state police. She had her hands in every company that was around. She was able to manipulate and create. And then Connie saw a way out. In 2012, when Cheryl was preparing to leave for Tennessee, it became clear that not everyone was going to be able to make the move. Connie saw this as an opportunity to leave the group. We got into our motorhome and headed south. We didn't even tell anybody bye at that point. Were you were you worried um, that like she was going to try to follow you or anything like that? I mean, she tried to find out where we were, which she did. Eventually, she found out that we were in Shreveport. And my brother happened to not only be a minister of the gospel, but he was also the lieutenant for the police department. And we had to explain to him what was going on. And he was able to put a protection around our family. It would be another two years before Cheryl would completely let go of Connie and her family. All I can say is that it was just God. God caused that release to happen. And now we're back on track and we have a good, healthy family. But I don't put anything past her. I don't put anything past her at all. I still think she can get to anybody that she wants to get to. That's why I wish she could be stopped in Tennessee. 
You know, there's too many good people in Tennessee that she's going to ruin just because nobody can stop her. And I don't understand why she can't be stopped. This claim that Cheryl can get to anyone she wants, well, it reminds me of something else we encountered while working on this story. I'm going to bring in my producer, Pesha, for this part. While researching season three, Pesha reached out to so many people in Columbia, Tennessee. But there's one man in particular that I want to talk about. A man named Terry Chandler. Terry Chandler is a private investigator in Murray County, Tennessee, which is where Columbia is. Pesha heard through some of her other contacts that Terry and Cheryl might be friends. And I thought, well, that could be an interesting perspective, right? If someone had good things to say about Cheryl, we want to hear them. Yeah, absolutely. Because Cheryl's so secretive, we haven't been able to get anyone to speak with us and tell us, like, why they like Cheryl. People that are following her or, you know, friends with her, none of them have agreed to speak with us. You know, I think from the outside looking in, if you've never found yourself in one of these situations, it is hard to imagine that over more than a decade, someone could be in an abusive situation or a situation that brings them stress or negativity with no other positive aspect. And so I was really excited to talk to Terry Chandler. If someone thinks Cheryl Ruthven is doing an amazing job, I want to hear about it. If this Terry Chandler guy really is friends with Cheryl, then we wanted to talk with him, hear what he had to say. So Pesha called his office. And a receptionist answered. She took down my number, said, oh, yeah, he'll definitely talk to you. And then she waited and waited and waited. I didn't get a call back, which is fairly typical when you're making these kinds of calls. Uh, So I followed up. And he was in the office and I was transferred to him. And his response to, hey, I'd love to speak to you about Cheryl Ruthven. We're working on a podcast about her was by far the most combative and aggressive response I received throughout this entire process. What did he say? Yeah. So I said, you know, I say the same thing every time. My name is Pesha. I'm a producer on a podcast called The Opportunist, and we're researching Cheryl Ruthven. I'm wondering if you have a few minutes to speak with me. And he said, you know, he doesn't want to be a part of it. He doesn't want to be nasty to people. He doesn't like the negativity. I said, well, how do you know her? And he said, it's a small town. We are protective of each other. I'm not going to be involved in this. Eventually, Pesha got hung up on. We assumed that was that. Until about a month later, we were in Whatcom County at Mark and Mary Walker's house interviewing them. And this man, Terry Chandler, he came up again. And Mary said, Terry Chandler ran for sheriff and Eva's Eden donated, which as a nonprofit, I think they're not supposed to do, which would mean Terry Chandler wasn't supposed to accept those donations. And he did. Um, He did not win the sheriff's election. And now he's a private investigator who doesn't want to be a part of the podcast. (laughs) But it is interesting because on top of, you know, things that Connie has said and other people have said to us about how Cheryl liked to get in with people that have power and influence, um, especially local law enforcement, this is kind of a trend. And so it sounds like she 
got in good with Terry Chandler. And then when he ran for sheriff, she wanted him to win so that she, you know, would have his ear. It's very reminiscent of the story Mark Walker told us about him calling in for a wellness check when his kids disappeared. To be clear, he didn't call Terry Chandler. Terry Chandler never became the sheriff. But Mark called the person who was the sheriff at the time in 2013 and requested a wellness check. It turns out Cheryl had already spoken to the sheriff before Mark ever called, and the sheriff refused to do a wellness check. It just um, strikes me as reminiscent of that story in that, okay, so this is something that Cheryl does. She gets to know local law enforcement and sort of controls the narrative around how she's perceived. I mean, I can only speculate it wasn't there, but it seems like she probably, you know, oh, I have a crazy ex-husband if you hear from him. Yeah, he's he's dangerous. We had to leave in the middle of the night. That's one of the things that Mark said, too, about them leaving in the middle of the night, because they didn't have to leave in the middle of the night. But the optics of it look as if you are escaping a very dangerous situation when you leave in the middle of the night. For sure. Optics to her followers and I think optics to her children. Mm-hmm. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We also reached out to the Director and Chief Animal Control Officer of Murray County Animal Services. I wanted to know how the local animal control perceives Cheryl's cat rescue. I called Jack Cooper because... I wanted to know, is Eva's Eden still actively operating? Do they work hand-in-hand with local animal shelters? What kind of work are they doing that is good? Um, You know, in rural areas, I think you can kind of expect that cats are running around and there's probably a pet overpopulation problem to some degree. So I called Jack and he called me right back. He was very friendly. He declined to interview. He said... This isn't the first time I've heard that, you know, possibly this is not just a, not just a cat rescue. Um, but he said they volunteer at the shelter. He's glad for the help and he didn't want to upset them by participating. There is another area that I want to dig into a little bit, and that is Cheryl's finances. We've already covered how Cheryl asked for money from her followers, but we didn't go much deeper than that. We did look into Cheryl's finances. Remember Ted Johnson and how he was excommunicated? He received his excommunication letter not from Cheryl, but from a board of directors of what was then called Mariah Ministries. One of the board's roles was Cheryl had gone to them and said, I need a salary. And I think that between 
the salary from her ministry, which at the time she was growing in size, that coupled with, you know, Pete's wealthy, they're married. So her income around 48000 a month is what we heard from unrelated sources, people who would have been in a position to see her cashing checks. Um, and then there have been accounts set up in the UK that are no longer accounts set up in Panama that are not quite sure where they're landing now. But one of them was like a coffee company. Her home in Columbia, Tennessee is valued at over a million dollars right now. And, you know, she purchased it in 2012. She also bought Olivia her own horse when they moved to Tennessee. Cheryl has multiple investments, including investments in gold and silver. So between the offshore accounts, the anesthesiologist salary that she shares with her husband, Pete, I think it's safe to say Cheryl's worth millions of dollars. But because we couldn't find an exact amount, we didn't spend a lot of time on that. I also think that money fuels her, but only to an extent. And I think it's about power. She's in it now. So what's she going to say? Never mind. I'm not a prophet anymore. Yeah, no, I agree that I don't think it's just about money. I mean, maybe in the beginning it was. But at some point, you have enough money. And um, there's things that she did that just are clear that she didn't do them for the money. I'm thinking about how Rachel Gunderson got excommunicated. And before they moved to Tennessee, Rachel got kicked out of the group. And then everyone left for Tennessee, and Rachel was left behind for a few months. She kept emailing Cheryl, trying to get back in Cheryl's good graces. And finally, Cheryl told her, okay, you can move to Tennessee. Obviously, Rachel could have just moved to Tennessee, but, you know, it— Cheryl's followers, once they're in deep enough, they feel like they can't do things without Cheryl's permission. So Cheryl gave her permission for Rachel to move to Columbia. So Rachel did on her own dime. She didn't have a lot of money. She figured out how to move her life from Washington State all the way to Tennessee. And then once she got there, that is when Cheryl finally told her, you know, no, I'm not going to let you back in the group. So what is that? Is that just Cheryl flexing her power? Is it her being cruel? Is it her, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, that situation, of course, hearing it as an outsider, it's baffling. Tennessee, Cheryl does not own Tennessee. Rachel could have moved there. But at the same time, what would that have meant for Mary, Rachel's sister? Would she have faced any negative repercussions from Cheryl if Cheryl found out her sister moved there? Would it have been speculated that Mary was part of it and Mary had in some way allowed this person who was banned from the group to be in the area? So I think that's sort of the, when we ask people what kind of power does Cheryl really have, it's that those kinds of fears are so ingrained in her followers that I don't even think it has occurred to a lot of them until years later. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's something that Rachel has talked about. Rachel went on a podcast called Life After God in July of 2016. And actually, if you're interested in hearing more about Rachel's story, it's a really good podcast and um, you can listen to it there. And that was the first time she had spoken out about uh, her experiences with Cheryl. And it really, I think the first time 
any of Cheryl's ex-followers had significantly spoken out. But Rachel did talk about even after that episode came out, one of her worries was that Cheryl would be punishing to not Rachel, but the people that still followed Cheryl. And that doesn't totally make sense from the outside. Like, why would Cheryl punish her followers for something that they had nothing to do with? But I think that that's just, like, how Cheryl works, is that if Cheryl's upset, she punishes the people that follow her. And something like doing something to expose her would definitely upset her. And so Rachel was worried at the time, and she was still in communication with um, at least one person who followed Cheryl, and um, she asked that person, like, are you okay? Is Cheryl taking this out on you? Because that is one of the ways in which Cheryl abuses and manipulates her followers. So one other thing I want to talk about is what happens to people when they leave high-control groups or cults. One of the people that we talked to, one of the people that we interviewed for this season um, is a a woman who we won't be naming, but we heard about her, reached out to her, and did an interview with her. And ultimately, she decided not to participate. And really, it was for mental health and safety reasons. This person has really struggled since she left Cheryl's group. I did want to talk about that. And even though we're not going to use this interview, I think there are parts of this person's story that we want to tell you. When we first reached out to this person, um, you know, she was hesitant to speak with us at all. She eventually did get back to us and we did end up doing a recorded interview. But, you know, her fear was that if her name and interview were used in the podcast, Cheryl would retaliate against her. And part of that retaliation would be sort of getting this person's mother to, you know, say things to her that are just really, really hard to hear from your mother. I've seen some of the exchanges, you know, it's things like, you are not more important to me than this group is really the sentiment. And It's been a challenge for this person since leaving the group to find stable housing. Without stable housing, if you're worrying about where you're going to sleep that night, you know, finding a job is, well, very important, has to be secondary. And on top of that, the emotional trauma of just years of being oppressed by someone and mistreated and sort of manipulated psychologically. This person didn't finish her education Her family was already fully believing that Cheryl was a prophet by the time she attended her first service. So she essentially said that I knew if I wanted to have a relationship with my family, I sort of had to get on board. So she did. This person quit school and joined Cheryl's group. But eventually she started to question things. And I'm fascinated with how she started to question things. Rachel Gunderson told us that she believed Cheryl could literally hear her thoughts. Others have said the same. How do you start to question someone if you think that they can hear your thoughts? Well, this is how one person did it. What this person did is they started with their phone voice recording their own thoughts and questions that they were having about what Cheryl was doing and what the group was doing, and what their beliefs were. Um, And hearing those thoughts back, and hearing those questions back, helped her to realize 
I do not have answers that I'm happy with and I have got to get out of here. Recording her own voice and listening back, that is what helped her out of this. She left, but that doesn't mean that things have been easy. She um, returned to the Northwest, but she has no support from her family. She's estranged from her father and her mother and sisters are still very much involved. One of the things that this person has struggled with since leaving Cheryl's group is making connections with new people. She has a hard time trusting. And even if she does trust someone, she often feels like they won't understand what she's been through. It can be very isolating and lonely. She said during her interview, I've never had anyone who would sit down with me and say, you know, I believe you. That was wrong. I've had to be the one who proved it. So it's sort of like, where does Cheryl's power lie? Well, the onus falls on the victims because you don't hear about people worshiping cats or giving all their money to this person who watched a bunch of Joyce Myers and started a church in her basement. It's like, who's going to believe you? The person we're talking about here She has experienced homelessness on and off since leaving the group. She has had a hard time finding employment as well. And she is not the only one who has struggled in these ways. It's not uncommon for people who leave high-control groups to have a difficult time integrating back into the world. The Safe Passage Foundation is a nonprofit organization that provides resources, support, and advocacy for people raised in restrictive, isolated, or high-demand communities— If you are interested in finding out more or donating, you can find them at safepassagefoundation.org. We will also put a link in our show notes. So where does Cheryl's power really lie? Is it a supernatural power? Or is it the power that people give her by believing in her? There are people who think that Cheryl is something more than human. Even some of her ex-followers still believe this. In fact, some of them have even warned me to be careful. But other people have said she is a total fraud, that there is nothing magical about her except her ability to manipulate other people. There's this verse from the Bible that keeps coming to mind. It's almost too perfect for the situation. It's from Matthew 7.15, and it's about how to know if a prophet is real or false. It says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. I interpret it to mean people can say whatever they want, but it is their actions that show us who they are. The scripture gives us a lot of guidelines of how to recognize what a person is walking in. Okay, so you can take the word and you can put that person in front of you and say, okay, let me look. Let me look at the fruits in their life. Let me bear the fruits versus what comes out of their mouth and out of their actions. And then begin to weigh, what is it that they are walking in? Is this a godly relationship or is this stinking rotten witchcraft that's trying to keep me bound up? Okay? So the only question I have left is, what are the fruits of Cheryl's ministry? When I look at the people whole lives have been touched by Cheryl Ruthven, 
This is what I see. Destroyed families, fathers estranged from their own children. I see a person who has lost everything and everyone and is experiencing homelessness as a result. I see another person who is so manipulated she is afraid to go to therapy. I see an attempted murder. I see financial ruin and animal abuse. Cheryl Ruthven's fruits are that of pain, loneliness, destruction, loss, and fear. An enormous amount of fear. Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with River Donahue, Pesha Eaton, Amanda Elliott, and Kate Mays. Colin Thompson is our executive producer and music supervisor. Anton Doty is our editor and music editor. Matt Sewell is our audio mixer and master. The cover art is by Arvin Lee. The ending credit song is Redemption's Gone by Tim John Howarth and James Patrick Kaleth. You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. A Go to history
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.